Hello, everyone, and welcome. Um, I'm Judith Palmer, Director of the Poetry Society, and it's a huge pleasure to welcome you here today for this celebration of new writing here at King's Place. So um, tonight we're wishing a very happy birthday to the National Poetry Competition, 40 years old, with a special evening featuring just 10 of the poets who've previously been among the winners of this award. And because the National Poetry Competition is all about new writing and discovering new voices, although you will hear some well-known names tonight, our special focus is on more recent winners, including poets from all the prize categories, not just the first prize winners. All of them, we think, are terrific, and we hope you will find yourself making some new discoveries this evening. So the National Poetry Competition is one of the biggest single poetry competitions, single poem contests in the world. Um, every year we receive about 14,000 entries. Um, every poem stays anonymous throughout the judging process. So previous reputations count for nothing. Um, we've had winners like Zafar Kunyal, who's captured the judges' attention with the very first poem they've ever made public. And we've had winners like Helen Dunmore and Tony Harrison, who've won when they've already been very well established. Also, poets like Caroline Duffy, Poet Laureate, who won very early on their careers, just at that tipping point when they were just beginning to make a name for themselves. So really, the National has kind of represents sort of it's everybody and all kinds of poetry, and anyone can win. And it's, it throws up the most amazing writers every year. And to capture some of the spirit of the award, um, we asked everybody who's reading tonight to also write a new commission, um, which they're premiering tonight, and which you have, I think, in an anthology you've been given. So um, a very big thank you to Cocaine Grants for the Arts and the London Community Foundation for supporting this new work. It's, it's, it's thanks to them that we've been able to commission the new work, so thank you. Um, but what about these commissions? So, in the spirit of the award, in all its multiplicity and serendipity and surprise, um, we gave our poets as inspiration two clusters of words to choose from. And what they had were taken from the texts of all the winning poems over all the years, um, one cloud of words that are the most universal words that seem to crop up time and again in the winning poems, and then another cluster of words which are all the singularities that are the really distinctive words that have only ever appeared once in the whole competition's history. And so they had full choice of, of, those, of those words to choose from and they've um, blended those into, into new poems. So essentially, you'll be listening out a little for echoes maybe. We've got lots of former winners uh, in the audience, so maybe you'll hear a refraction of yourself as well. So to our poets. We have five poets in this half, uh, then an interval, and then our final five poets. Um, and I'm going to begin by introducing the first three of those poets. So please welcome onto the stage Ian Duig, Mark Pajak, and Mary Jean Chan. So Ian Dewey, who'll read first, 
has written seven books of poetry, most recently The Blind Roadmaker, published by Picador, a PBS recommended shortlist recommendation, which was also shortlisted for the Roehampton, the Forward Best Collection, and the T.S. Eliot Prize. Duig works with musicians, artists, socially excluded groups, and he's been recently editing Any Change, Poetry in a Hostile Environment, an anthology of work from Leeds immigrant community. He has won the National Poetry Competition twice. So he's one of two poets who've done that, and we've got both of those here tonight. So Ian won with the Lammas Hireling in 2000 and 1919. Oh, there we go. There's a, there's a little anniversary thing, which was winner in 1987. We'll then hear from Mark Pajak. So Mark is just putting together a first collection at the moment. His work has appeared in magazines such as the London Review of Books, Poetry London, The North, and Magma. He was first placed in the Bridport Prize and received a Northern Writers Award, and an Eric Gregory, and a UNESCO International Writing Residency. His first pamphlet, Spitting Distance, was selected by Carol Ann Duffy as a laureate's choice and was published in 2016 with Smith Doorstop. He was a winner in 2016 with his poem, Cat on the Tracks. We'll then hear from Mary Jean Chan. Mary Jean is a poet, editor and critic from Hong Kong, now based in London. She was shortlisted for the 2017 Forward Prize for Best Single Poem. And her debut pamphlet, A Hurry of English, from the Ignition Press, was selected as a 2018 PBS summer pamphlet choice. She's a Ledbury poetry critic, an editor of Oxford Poetry, and her debut collection, Flesh, will be published by Faber and Faber this July. She was a winner in 2017 with her poem, The Window. So you'll hear from all three of those now, and please, big hand to Ian Dewig. Thank you very much, Judith. You'll see from the structure of the evening that it's very important to set the bar very low at the beginning, which is why they asked me to read. Um, I'm very honored to be reading and very grateful um, it made a big difference to me winning the competition. Um, I'm, I'm honoured in the company of the poets I'm reading with tonight. The first poem, the anniversary poem, 1919, um, started life after I left university. I was working in a hostel um, for homeless people, young people, and very often transphobia was behind the experience of the people who had been forced out of their homes. One of my colleagues was a member of the anarchist book club, and reading about, um, reading in Zapata's biography, I came across the magnificent character of Manuel Palafox, who was not only a radical revolutionary, but he was a sexual revolutionary as well, to, um, uh, to the extent that made it difficult for people to handle him. I understand that um, he would have been hanged were it not for the fact that he was actually a very important theoretician at the time. He didn't actually do what he does in my poem, which is go to Ireland and then write all of the eighties later poetry. But he's an utterly admirable character, and the people I worked with loved him as much as I did. 1919. Dismissed from Tlaltizapan for changing sex, Manuel Palafox sulked in Aranista. At markets, he bought chimoyas, limes, and ink from Watapec. 
Some days he wore his 20 ounce sombrero, deerskin pants and charro boots. On others, gold embroidered blouses and red kerzimer skirts. He wrote to Magonistas, Zapata is finished. He takes orders from Obregon, Rally de Peones, Death to Carranza, Tierra y Libertad. He wrote to Lenin, Trotsky is finished. Seek Concord with the Ukraine Maknevshina. Breslitovs are cock up. Regards to the missus. He wrote to Freud, were you coped when you dreamt up this? No Mexican has even heard of the sexual revolution. All Eros last year, now it's Thanatos, bloody Thanatos. Jung was right, grow a beard, you think you're Moses. I hope your jaw drops off. <laughs> Regards to the missus. At last he wrote to Yates, dear Willie, how's the vision? Mine's double. Ha ha, shit. Willie, I'm finished in Mexico. It's full of bigots. Ireland can't be worse. I'll work, your brother paints. I'll hold his letters. You can have my poems. The one about this year, change it round, it'll do for Ireland. What happened to my lift with casements? Willie, get me out of here. Shopping in Cashel for Pulke, Michael Roberts, research assistant to a popular writer, itched in his Connemara cloth himself well known for a special devotion to the Virgin of Guadalupe. He frowned on local talk of a drunken madwoman in red skirts, publicly disputing with the bishop. The Lammas Hirelings started from um, a walk in the country near where Stephen uh, lives and works in Belfast, Island McGee. Um, and really, I suppose, uh, Perhaps it was the fact that it was an Irish woman who invented the, who invented the unreliable narrator. And I wanted to put that in a poem and, and use some of the local folklore mixed in with what I heard to um, give you an account of something which has turned a person's mind. And you have to infer from the bits of knowledge that he's put together what happened. This is the Lammas Harling. After the fair, I'd still a light heart and a heavy purse he struck so cheap. And cattle doted on him. In his time, mine only dropped heifers, fat as cream. Yields doubled. I grew fond of company that knew when to shut up. Then, one night, disturbed from dreams of my dear late wife, I hunted down her torn voice to his pale form, stock still in the lights from the dark lantern, stark naked but for the fox trap biting his ankle, I knew him a warlock, a cow with leather horns. To go into the hair gets you muckle sorrow, the wisdom runs, muckle care. I leveled and blew the small hour through his heart, the moon came out. By its yellow witness, I saw him fur over like a stone mossing. His lovely head thinned, his top lip gathered, his eyes rose like bread. I carried him in a sack that grew lighter at every step and dropped him from a bridge. There was no splash. Now my herd's elf shot. I don't dream but spend my nights casting ball from half-crowns and my days here. 
Bless me, Father, I have sinned. It has been an hour since my last confession. And the commission poem is called Nothing for Sale. And it was really very much written with this event in mind, poetry, not exactly the way to get rich. Although there are prizes and competitions, as Eliot said, poets aren't really in competition with each other. We do such different things. This is a celebration of skill for its own sake. And although I took some of the words from the clouds, um, it led me in very different directions. This is kind of very much a true story. You'll, if you look on the internet, you'll find some of the things I quote and the woman who quoted them. Nothing for sale. The businessman who has come to make you an offer waiting in the sea silk weaver's cottage sees the signs. Haste doesn't live here. And here nothing is for sale. She had a visitor. He watched through her net curtain. A little girl whose eyes were deep pools sat by her while the loom of a dialect song framed her work. The smell of salt and lemon scoured the air as well as raising the shades of teasel strands she nursed. Finally, the sea silk weaver tied their ends together, lifted her window blind and showed the young girl how beautiful she always was. <clears throat> Excuse me. While in the sunlight, her dirty old brown bracelet changed into spun gold. Now she called him in, told him to close his eyes and say when this touched him. But he was so, it was so light, he stayed silent at this wordless poetry written in water by pen shells she now guards. The Rosetta Stone misnamed it. The Chinese call it mermaid silk, so fine it made a bridal veil that would not fill half a walnut shell, nor her shroud the other half. She said, a hundred dives might gather enough for a bracelet, something to weigh up, she smiled. He opened his eyes, slowly, counting, but the light still hurt. He gathered himself, rereading signs in a language that seemed more foreign all the time. Thank you for listening to me. Hello. How are you? So for the commission, the two words I chose were see and incinerator. And after Googling these words, I ended up reading an article about shipbreakers, people who dismantle condemned ships. Now, a shipbreaker's life is very short. And the ships that they dismantle are monstrous. Some of them are longer in length than the height of the Eiffel Tower. So this is about a shipbreaker. On dismantling the biggest oil tanker in the world. He felt no danger inside his breath tepid welder's mask, nor in his blowtorch, that concentrated rush as the flame tunes into a blue bud. 
And despite the frequent accidents on large condemned ships, up close to red metal, he never flinched from the torture's sudden lightning white point of contact. But there was that moment during the routine first day tour of the tanker when he had walked alone into the complete dark of the cargo hold and stood there blind in the sulfurous smell of seaweed and rust. He shouted, Echo. And the silence was long and unexpected and somehow alert as if that emptiness was considering him before allowing his voice to detonate just once off the distant hull. Thank you, that one person. Cheers. <laughs> Best review I've ever had. As this is the 40th anniversary, I thought I'd read uh, the poem I was, I was lucky enough to have commended. So this is Cat on the Tracks. He wore the night in his fur, sat on a rung between the rails, tail wisping like smoke, as a distant train split the air along its seam. Its coming headlight lay down track and placed an opal into each black seed of the cat's eyes, every blink slow as an eclipse. Soon, the white light pinned him, the only drop of night left, as vibration turned the rails to mercury. But there was no give in the cat, no flex anywhere but his tail. And for a moment, their roles reversed, as though it were the train facing the inevitable cat the end of the line. The world lit up like a page and the train a sentence before the full stop. Now my mum's a cat lover and I read her that and she went, ooh, you bastard. <laughs> so uh, sorry any cat lovers in the audience. So I'm just going to read two very short poems now to finish off with. This next one is about um, a piece of family folklore. It is the unusual way that my aunt let her husband know that she was pregnant. A set place. Tonight, to show her husband she is expecting, my aunt is setting an extra place at their dinner table. On the cooker, Blue flames tickle under a pot, the lid just starting to stutter. Sweet smell of carrots going soft. And because ultimately the pregnancy will fail, allow her this set place to put things on hold. Here, let the clean knife hold a sliver of ceiling in its blade. 
let the whole dining room be trapped in the bubble of the wine glass. And let the fork hold open its little silver palm as this wooden chair with the plush bump of a cushion in its lap holds no one. And I'm just going to read one more very short one, but before I do, thank you so much, everyone, for coming out and supporting us tonight. This is my dream job, and it wouldn't be possible without readers and audience members, so thank you so much. <laughs> Slaughterhouse worker at the swimming pool. The showers stopped him dead. It wasn't what you'd think, the sterile white of the tiled walls, that neat line of pink bodies, a gleam of metal over each one. It was the smell, how the sweetness of chlorine and disinfectant comes so close to wiping out that other smell faint, but warm, and unmistakably animal. It was that, that and the constant guttering of the drains. Thank you very much. Just to say how grateful I am to be sharing the stage with such amazing poets. And many of you, um, I've studied your work, and in many ways, you've been an inspiration to me. So thank you for that. And obviously, thank you all for coming. I'd like to start with the commission poem. Um, actually, the commission came at a very opportune moment when I was working through a poem that just wouldn't settle, and I didn't like the shape it was in. It began as a prose poem, and then I tried delineating it and didn't work either. Um, but then with this uh, word clouds, I decided to make it a mirror poem. So basically the second half is the exact same as the first, except that it goes backwards. Happiness. All the ingredients necessary for happiness. I grew up well-fed, years away from war, its aftermath. When someone in the family knows sacrifice as the only viable currency, such knowledge seeps. History must suffice. My mother knew hunger. A piece of bread in the absence of a miracle cannot yield more loaves. I will give myself the mango stone, the meat to someone else. I will give myself the mango stone, the meat to someone else. A miracle cannot yield more loaves. My mother knew hunger. A piece of bread in the absence of history must suffice. Such knowledge seeps, sacrifice as the only viable currency when someone in the family knows war, its aftermath. I grew up well-fed, years away from all the ingredients necessary for happiness. 
Um, in the spirit of the idea of new work, I thought I'd read some poems that I've actually never read before, and um, most of them come from um, my new book that will be forthcoming in July. This first poem is called, called Autobiography, and um, I wanted to play with the idea because, as we all know, a lot of female writers are seen as writing work that is personal, that is memoir, but male writers are often given the um, supposed freedom to write fiction and to imagine. And so this poem is actually written in the voice of my mother. Autobiography. My detractors think they know me, loud and always too soft-hearted. The time I purchased 50 pairs of frames from a sobbing woman whose eyewear shop was closing down. The day I lost my father and cried myself sick until I thought I would never sing again though music was my only love during the revolution. The time my daughter told me she was in love with a woman and I lied and told her it would be okay. What does three years of famine teach a person? Nothing, except that there is such a thing as perpetual hunger, loss pounding on the windows like rain, except that my father loved me and that he came back as soon as he could, in the swallowtail butterfly that fluttered around the flat, in our pet papillion, in my beloved child. I write a lot about sport, and I've only just begun to realize why. Um, my mother had a quite extraordinary childhood. When she was eight, she was drafted into the Shanghainese um, diving team to be a competitive diver. But then she was told to leave the team at age 11 because she was growing too quickly. Um, and I always found that to be beautiful but also traumatic and difficult. And so this poem is a tribute to my mother and her childhood. Let them know. Let them know how you were handpicked like the finest of pears, your childhood spent in a diving pool, those clasped and taped wrists hitting the water, the children stepping up once more to the task they cannot refuse. How you learned to play the piano, then were chosen for the local music conservatoire, but were replaced the day the revolution arrived, your spot given to a worker's child. How you left a decade later for the colonized city, where even the tap water was ceaselessly cold and the citizens racist, your Shanghainese accent not fit for those enamored by the Queen's English. How your writer's callous grew for your paycheck, cash sent to your siblings and mother in Shanghai, all alive and trying to be well. You, a scriptwriter in a new dialect, expressions so easily crossed out by a Cantonese hand, the red ink blotting the black. I'll end with um, a slightly more lighthearted poem, although none of my poems are really lighthearted, so. Um, my partner is from Birmingham, and when we first met, I realized that she loved drinking tea, as I suppose the British do. Um, and in China, we also love our tea. And so I thought I'd write a poem um, about tea. The Importance of Tea. 
When your aunt arrived, she asked for normal tea, which, to my untrained ears, sounded a bit like normality. In Hong Kong, normal tea is green or white or red. It took my mind several moments to move from green to white to red to land on black. Your aunt was flexible. Any Assam, Darjeeling, or Earl Grey? We only had matcha, some loose-leaf iron Buddha in the cupboard, no milk. Your aunt looked at you as if you'd failed at being British, me as if I'd failed to properly assimilate. Afterwards, you said I was projecting onto your aunt the fears I harbored. No matter how many years I've spent in this country, how I interpret normal tea, what is normal to me? You are learning Mandarin Chinese. I see how the characters are split for you. Signifier and signified refuse to conjoin. That's what happened when your aunt asked for the normal tea. Days later, when a waiter brought us white sugar for our oolong tea at a cafe, I caught your gaze. We laughed and left the sachets unopened. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ian, Mark, and Mary Jean. Uh, we have a bookstall in the uh, foyer. Uh, Mary Jean and Ian both have to catch trains quite quickly at the end, so if you'd like uh, to have a chat with them um, and have a book signed, then do it in the interval, may I recommend. Um, but before then, we have two more wonderful poets. Um, we are going to hear from Caleb Parkin and Joe Shapcott. And there they are. They snuck up. So, Caleb, um, he describes himself as a day-glow, queero, techno-eco-poet. He's a performer, a facilitator, an educator, and a filmmaker based in Bristol. He does lots of work in museums. He does loads of work working in schools. He's quite often done things for um, the Poetry Society, First Story. Um, he's currently putting together his first pamphlet, and he has just, this week, got in his dissertation for his MSc, Creative Writing for Therapeutic Purposes. So congratulations on that achievement as well. Uh, Caleb was one of the winners in the 2016 National Poetry Competition with a poem, The Desktop Metaphor, of which we also have a fine film. Um, Joe Shapcott has won the Queen's Gold Medal for Poetry and most of the other prizes in poetry, um, which we will mention. Um, but because the poems are so marvellous and, and we love them. Um, so her first three collections, Electroplating the Baby, Phrasebook and My Life Asleep, are also gathered in a selected poems called Her Book, published by Faber. Um, Tender, Tender Taxes is her versions of Rilke. She's won the best the Forward Prize for Best Collection. She's won the Costa Book Award, and that was for her most recent collection of Mutability. And I believe that it's supposed to be a new book very soon, but we don't sort of mention that, but I believe it's very imminent. And Jo has won the National Poetry Competition twice, like Ian, da -da. 
1985, with the Surrealist Summer Convention came to our city, and in 1991, with Phrasebook. Um, please join me in welcoming, first, Caleb Harkin. Okay, thank you very much for having me here. I'm really honored to be in such amazing company and to have such a, a sea of um, warm faces. It's nice, it's a nice uh, vibe. Um, I'm gonna read the commission poem first of all. I worked on this by writing words from each of the word clouds on different color cards and made myself a kind of oblique strategies deck and then uh, combining them. And I kept coming back to this combination of felt chip shop um, and, but for me, felt, which was not the past tense of to feel, but it was the, the textile felt, it was compressed, and got thinking about chip shops and where I'm from, which is the Essex-Suffolk border and that part of the world. And so it has a run-on title, which is All the Chip Shops I Have Ever Been To. All the chip shops I have ever been to are stacked up a deep-fried skyscraper somewhere on the East Anglian coast. This tower of bubbling fats creeps behind Clacton-on-Sea, Walton-on-the-Naze, casts shadows near the shibboleth of Aldborough. Meanwhile, Sizewell B is a puffball on the horizon, round as a worm moon, rising, an eye with no iris. And still, the cocooned food shifts across their miles of steel, papers shaken through with white plastic bollards of salt, the North Sea lingering in flesh, peas copied and pasted so often they forget to be green. At Dunnage Heath, the oyster catchers are famished and curlews are threatening to straighten their beaks. But still, in the steaming museum cases of their counters, the crispy sarcophagi of battered sausages, the preserved remains of cod, body after body dredged up in silver cages, hundreds of pucker pies nested in their capsized foil crowns. In the blue-black-gray around Cromer's ingrown pier, an undrownable orange boy invites me to swim. The tower wavers like seaweed, shimmers, a candle, its unknown postcode defined by the scent of second-hand oil woven through wardrobes, chips in the toes of socks, fishbones catching at my collar. In all the chip shops, the radio plays the creak of a sign, the rush of a wave, then static. <clears throat> so I guess it's landscape poetry of my own sort. Um, when we lived in Leeds, we lived on a boat and as such used the laundrette. And I love laundrettes. I've got a strange affection for them as places and as sites of kind of connection um, and where you interact with people in this kind of quite intimate uh, use of textiles and cleaning. And this was about one of the laundrettes in Leeds. Double duvet mecca. We fold our covers together. Oh, it's a tanker, by the way. I didn't say that. It is a tanker. I'll start again. It's a tanker. Double duvet mecca. We fold our covers together, a courtly dance. I go to give thanks, but behind his warm machines, the laundrette prays to mecca. 
We filter floral shirts, smalls, neat his and his stacks of pants. The laundrette moves between us, must notice this evidence of shared sheets. We buy a service wash. I call you the other one, dodging partner. But the laundrette smiles warmly, his universe all paired socks. Uh, there is warmth uh, and there is darkness and death. Both are around, often at the same time. Um, so a bit of, bit of that darkness here. Uh, I'm really interested in the more than human world of machines and technology and animals, and they're, they're often in my poems together. Uh, so this is called Exit Only. The clock tick stutters through these seconds before men are consumed by suits, straightening the cracked mirrors of each other's ties. We chew pallid sandwiches, mutter as a jumbo jet clatters across the roof tiles. A face in photo frames blots to a silhouette. Later, after that curtained conveyor belt, but before the breadcrumbs of the pub buffet, we stand in car park limbo. A solitary red kite cuts the shrieking blue above the crematorium chimney. We shield our eyes to see this other body, its sharp tail an arrow away from death. We count our breaths. I have of late been thinking about eco-poetry quite a bit. Uh, and what that means and what eco-poetry could be and queer eco-poetry and, and, and perhaps an eco-poetry that doesn't only celebrate uh, the birds but also challenges some of the forces that are leading to that bird's habitat being destroyed, I suppose. And those are many and varied. One of them might be masculinity. Um, so I'm having some fun with thinking about that. And overwork and self-care and how, we, how can we care for the planet if we don't care for ourselves? I don't know. Um, starts with a quote from the BBC Earth website. Our planet occupies what scientists sometimes call the Goldilocks zone. Its distance from our star means it is neither too hot nor too cold to support liquid water, thought to be a key ingredient for life. Sometimes I don't write poems that are in my voice, just before I read this. The zone. I'll have a triple cap triple shot polar cap espresso in torrents down these glacial cracks blackening the flows give me a latte arctic love with civet ship beans swirling up from grounds filtered through these baleen teeth i'll have an antarctic macchiato a sprinkle of synthetic penguin several sachets of brown seal sugar make it goldilocks make it Make it a landscape breathed upon by a morning mouth, a push-button blank expanse for a lid, a burrow on a drift to sip through where something is sleeping baby, curled up white, whipped cream, marshmallow pink, nose on mute, mammalian dream to wake up, to wake up and smell it, Goldilocks. Make it, make it. That's my last poem. Thank you very much for listening.
Happy birthday, National Poetry Competition. Um, thank you to the Poetry Society for curating it for 40 years um, and for, in fact, everything you do to support us poets, poetry, audiences, readers. We couldn't do without you. Um, it's a treat to read with all these poets, speaking of curating poetry. I'm going to start with um, one of the prize poems. It's a poem called Phrasebook. And the poem contains two kinds of phrases. The first I just found in quite an old Italian-English phrase book knocking around at home, dating from the 1950s. Um, and I felt very at home in it because, of course, in the phrase book, everything goes wrong. Where is my passport? I have lost my phone. Where is the police station? My house is on fire. Um, <laughs> that seemed like my life. And because it was an old phrase book, it had the most extraordinary phrase, let me pass, please, I am an English woman. <laughs> and I couldn't think where you could use this phrase in the world right now. <laughs> the other phrases in the poem are all from uh, the technology of warfare. Um, it's worth saying that the poem was written during the time of the first Gulf War, but it could be any war. Phrasebook. I'm standing here inside my skin, which will do for a human remains pouch for the moment. Look down there, up here, quickly, slowly. This is my own front room, where I'm lost in the action, live from a war on screen. I am an Englishwoman. I don't understand you. What's the matter? You are right. You are wrong. Things are going well. Badly, am I disturbing you? TV is showing bliss as taught to pilots. Blend, low silhouette, irregular shape, small, secluded. Please write it down. Please speak slowly. Bliss is how it was in this very room when I raised my body to his mouth, when he even balanced me in the air, or at least I thought so, and yes, the pilots say, yes, they have caught it through the side-looking airborne radar and through the J-stars. I am expecting a gentleman, a young gentleman, two gentlemen, some gentlemen. Please send him, them, up at once. This is really beautiful. Yes, they have seen us, the pilots, in the kill box on their screens, and played the routine for getting us stealthed, that is, cleansed to you and me, taken out. They know how to move into a single room like that, to send in with pinpoint accuracy a hundred harms. I have two cases and a cardboard box. There is another bag there. I cannot open my case. Look out, the lock is broken. Have I done enough? Bliss the pilots say, is for evasion and escape. What's love in all this debris? Just one person pounding another into dust, into dust. I do not know the word for it yet. Where is the British consulate? Please explain. 
What does it mean? What must I do? Where can I find? What have I done? I have done nothing. Let me pass, please. I am an Englishwoman. On to my commissioned poem. Um, there were many attractive words, and in fact, many of them found their way um, into the poem. Uh, the, the main inspiration was the word replicant, and my poem um, imagines a robot arriving, as they will in the future, deli delivered by Amazon, and someone unwrapping it. Uh, but I'm also very interested in consciousness, so the mind of the robot, I think, becomes the subject of the poem. The arrival of the robot. It was a drawbridge of a moment, feathery, steel, an all ending in tears sort of a moment. He was swept into his own head typhoon, scalp sensations flowing down to his fingertips as he aimed the jittery scissors. He unboxed her. He was a hundred stories high on an inhalation of silicone, the crackle and zip of cellophane, high on her pasodoble arm and neck bend, high on the price of her. He thought she might be wondering because they can, you know, wonder where she was. But her mind turned on how far human maps could take her with all their dust and replicas and further limits. Her voice was a frontier of husky binaries, mortality built into its gravitas. I have so few edges, she thought, and they so many. What love at their edges, what love. You'll be very happy when I tell you something about the next poem, and that is that it comes with the last poem before the interval warning. Um, it's a, and it's a short poem uh, in two parts called Bodywork. One. It isn't hard, the job of breathing. It's not even hard to speak of breathing. And the insects and whirlers inside and all their spiky complicity in the day to day. Two. One day, I promised my body this was it. I would stay, put up with its little aches and trickles, twitches, gurgles, clicks. The noisy thing, it would be clean, well-fed. I would buff its nails, part its hair, and keep it covered in public with soft fabrics, fluffy cottons, velvets, lamb's wool. Then my body opened its mouth, shouted, actually, said things I can't say. Then, after long silence, swallowed me whole. So now, I am my body, nothing less. And this is me, 
speaking. Thank you. You have been listening to part one of our National Poetry Competition 40th Anniversary Readings, which were held at King's Place on the 20th of March, 2019. Part two should be available on whatever you use to listen to podcasts very soon. Thanks go to all ten of our featured poets. Liz Berry, Mary Jean Chan, Geraldine Clarkson, Ian Duig, Fran Locke, Sinead Morrissey, Mark Pajak, Caleb Parkin, Stephen Sexton and Joe Shapcott. And don't forget that you yourself can enter this year's National Poetry Competition. You can enter at poetrysociety.org.uk forward slash NPC. And with all poems read anonymously by the judges, it's a level playing field, whether you're a new face or an established writer. That's poetrysociety.org.uk forward slash NPC. This has been a podcast from the Poetry Society. If you'd like to find out more about our publications, competitions, projects or events, visit us online at poetrysociety.org.uk This has been a podcast from the Poetry Society. If you'd like to find out more about our publications, competitions, projects or events, visit us online at poetrysociety.org.uk